Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing today, sir? Yeah, I'm doing really great. I'm so excited about my study of, of Egyptian. It's going to detour me. It might even change my life. I don't know. Do you think I'm weird for that? Or? I think you're weird for a lot of things, Derek, but you know. I almost am tempted to switch over from biblical studies to do a graduate degree in Egyptology. What are you going to do with it, do you reckon? Well, there's really no jobs, so I probably <laughs> won't do that. But, you know, literally the only job you can do with a degree in Egyptology is teach other graduate students in Egyptology and perpetuate the cycle. You know, Egyptology is literally a pyramid scheme. I was about to say, this sounds like a pyramid scheme. You literally learn it. And teach it to others who can't do anything else with it but teach it to others. That is, I mean, when you put it like that, it sounds like a profound waste. But I know you're enjoying yourself learning this language. And I'm sure it's going to impact your studies positively. It just won't pay any bills or pay for itself. Did you notice that I said Egyptology is literally a pyramid scheme? I hate it here. (laughs) I hate it here. I want to go home. Well, you are home. I'm about to say, I'm in my bedroom right now. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to have to delete my awful laugh. (laughs) I can't believe you said it and I didn't even catch it. Like, it just went right over my head. But it's true. I mean, I probably will go back. But I think studying an ancient culture, their religion, language, um, History, society, politics. I, I think it'll be really helpful for me. Okay. As always, Derek, keeping it real and keeping it weird with hobbies that actually have practical value, or at least are a better use of your time than most other hobbies that normal people do. Y'all need to know, we had a symposium for, birthday, for Derek's birthday last week. Yeah. It was not a party. It was a symposium. We just... Got together, had little finger foods, but fancy finger foods, matching china, tablecloths, discussed art, philosophy, current events, and just had all kinds of a fancy time. I ate, I drank sparkling water that was infused with some kind of flower. What, I don't know what it was. It was, it was really fancy, though. Yeah. And it was by far the most unique birthday party I've ever been to. So let's go ahead and move into the text. Before we do, though... Want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts to promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay, so now we are going to get into the text. Derek, is there any kind of literary, historical, or theological context you want to give these verses before we dive in? No, let's just dive right in. All right. So the first thing that stood out to me, and I guess uh, what needs to be said before we jump in, we are in Helaman chapters 13 through 16. This is the prophecy, or mostly the prophecy of Samuel the Lamanite, and uh, he's basically talking to these people about Christ. He was told by God to come talk to these people about Christ and warn them, exhort them to repentance and more. Uh, The content of this actual prophecy and Samuel's words is quite interesting for reasons we'll get into a little bit later. But I wanted to hopefully just go through this chronologically and talk about some of these moments that occur throughout the narrative of Samuel's preaching and what subsequently happens to him. 
first thing I noticed, I'm reading, what is this? Chapter 13, verse 4. So basically the story we have so far prior to getting to this verse is Samuel has already been among the Nephites trying to preach to them and, you know, teach them, have them observe the law of Moses and all this stuff. And he'd been preaching to the point where the Nephites actually cast him out. And when they cast him out, he's going home or at least was about to go home. And then the voice of the Lord came to him, at least that's what we read in verse 3, and told him that he should return again and prophesy unto the people whatsoever things should come into his heart, which Samuel does. So it came to pass that they would not suffer that he should enter into the city. This is verse 4. Therefore he went and got upon the wall thereof, and stretched forth his hand, and cried with a loud voice, and prophesied unto the people whatsoever things the Lord put into his heart. So Samuel had already been put out once, and could have easily given up. After, after the Lord told him to go back, and they wouldn't let him go into the city, he could have given up at that point as well. He's like, okay, I did what the Lord said. I came back, but they won't let me into the city. But Samuel, not to be deterred, he innovated, and he got on the wall. He's like, okay, y'all ain't going to let me in the city. I'm going to find some way to preach to your people. I'm going to find some way in here. I'm going to get to y'all any way I can. So I'm going to get up on this wall, and I'm going to talk to y'all. Everybody can see me from this wall. Everybody can hear me, apparently. So that's what I'm going to do. So he got on the wall. And in this one verse, we see the path of uh, folks that are made to feel unwanted or otherwise unwelcome by, uh, by the very institution that the Lord is calling them to. And we can already see an analog there. Uh, I thought, for example, of you, Derek. Now, I know you want to be here. Uh, but when I read this verse, I think about some other LGBTQ saints who may be called to this work, called to uh, preach the gospel, or at the very least called to be in these spaces that can sometimes be, you know, apathetic or benevolent at best or hostile at worst. And, uh, you know, you got to be here and you got to claim your own space. And that's what Samuel did. Samuel claimed his own space. He innovated and claimed a space for himself on this wall. He exercised his creativity to make sure that he did what the Lord wanted him to do in spite of a hostile environment. And I feel like there is something liberatory and also very encouraging about uh, what Samuel did as a person who is who does not fit in with the Nephites. This is a Lamanite, somebody who has the gospel of Jesus Christ and wants to preach it to people who do not want to hear it or wants to share some word or some portion of the word that he has been given. In fact, I really like the language that uh, is communicated to Samuel. The Lord tells him to say what's on his heart, you know, and I just find that really interesting. He's like, you know, just go, just go in and just say whatever you want. Say what's on your heart. Say what you are thinking about, you know, and that just lets me know that sometimes our ministry is to simply share what we know. You know what I'm saying? Right. And we're not entirely sure. For all we know, Samuel was a convert of Nephi and Lehi during their missions to the Lamanites. You know what I'm saying? In fact, we're going to see evidences of that as we listen to Samuel's preaching. But point is, we don't know what Samuel's experience is like within the church. We don't know how long he's been converted unto the Lord. All we know is that the Lord called him to basically go to the Nephites, share his experience, share what he knows, and that will be adequate. And it's not just adequate. It's by far one of the uh, highlight sermons that we get throughout the entire Book of Mormon. 
And that's powerful. We've talked about the power of the words of the marginalized and the necessity of writing those down. And this is a conversation we'll probably right, exactly. get. Okay. So we don't have to have that conversation now. But all I wanted to really bring out was the fact that Nephi, or sorry, Samuel was called into a space where he was not welcome, called to a play, called to do something where he was just to share what was on his heart. And, uh, that is basically what he did. He had to exercise some of his own creative faculties to get into that space and to claim that space for himself, but Samuel did it. And that is super powerful for people on the margins. But I was specifically thinking about members of the LGBTQ community. And I was wondering, Derek, what you were able to derive from uh, these verses about Samuel's situation, particularly him making his way into uh, the Nephite city to preach to them. Yeah, it's a couple of things. So first of all, He's because he's literally on the wall, he's at the boundary between the inside and the outside, and he's a liminal figure, that he doesn't fit the categories. And like many LGBTQ people, we don't fit into categories, and we're on the edges or the margins or the in-between place. And also, like you said, because he wasn't welcome within the walls, that resonates with the experience of many LGBTQ people right. not being welcome in, in right. spaces and having to do the best we can, make space, like you said. Mm-hmm. I want to get into this other thing that people take a little detour and talk about, this idea of watchmen on the tower. Because many people will look to Samuel as an example of a prophet that's a watchman on the tower or on the wall. And we've heard this saying so many times in the LDS tradition. But here's what I want to say. We don't want to lead that to lead into an imbalanced view of the role of prophets. So yes, there are watchmen on the tower. But there are also watchmen on the ground. Let me say it again. There are watchmen on the tower, but there are also watchmen on the ground. Mm. And to make it gender neutral, I'll say watch persons, okay? Okay. So we've got these, you know, these uh, watch persons on the ground that have a very valid role. And, you know, our church is not to be identified only with its leaders, And I love Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 on this about one body with many members. And there's diversity, diversity of gifts and diversity of roles. And you can't just take one role and say it's the most important. No one person, not even the prophet, can do everything or see everything in the church. So the watch persons on the ground can notice things that the watchmen on the tower cannot see. That is very important. A lot of people just say, oh, we've got the watchman on the tower. They can see farther. They can, they're looking over there, and they, they'll just tell us what to do. That is irresponsible, and it doesn't work. It doesn't actually help us develop our spiritual gifts. I was about to say, it kind of discourages our own right. watchfulness. Right. But my point is the, that the watch persons on the ground can notice things that the people at the top might not see, and we will be the first to notice problems right where we are. Mm -hmm. This is very important. And the watchmen on the tower need us, and they need to listen to us. And I love how Paul puts this. He says, And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. That's 1 Corinthians 12, verse 21. That is so beautiful. The watchmen on the tower cannot say well that they can do it all alone without the people on the ground who can see what's actually going on. Mm. And just let me give two examples of this. First is Peter and the Gentiles. 
you know, the people doing ministry among the Gentiles, the local people, saw the miracles that were happening there way before, you know, Peter figured it out. And that's a case where the, the watchman on the ground had something to say to the watchman on the tower. Same thing with the women at the tomb. The women at the tomb knew what was going on before the men did. Mm. I mean, there's ways that we serve as checks and balances for one another, and we reinforce the whole body by having different roles. What do you think of all that? I really like this idea of uh, empowering the people, particularly the watch people on the ground. We're not really conditioned to understand that there is a lot going on on the ground that needs attention, that needs work, and that perhaps the watch people in the tower are not as privy to. Sometimes I fear that we are so concerned with what's going on outside of us as a church that we are not as privy to what is happening within the church or on the ground with people who have the very resources that we could all stand to use as members of the church. So I really like that you have placed that power into the people on the ground because they really are necessary. And, you know, calling, you know, giving a call back to Paul and his discourse on the body of the church, all of us are necessary to make this body function the way it's intended to. We really can't uh, neglect any part of the body. Like while technically the body could live without the foot, the quality of life is definitely drastically right. reduced. Right. And I do not want anybody to get the impression that we are in a position to neglect any part of the body simply because the prophet is understood mm-hmm. to be, you know, the one in charge, the one who can see everything, the one who knows best. Yeah, and I think that's really tragic because a lot of people in the church literally have said this, like, oh, if you don't like it, you can leave. Like, we're not going to change we're just gonna and you can peacefully go and we'll just let you go and this happens with folks of color and with lgbtq people and and women as well in the church i'm like that's not at all christ's church that's not what christ did he went Mm. after the one right and like have you heard this before i've heard this like leaders of the church say we get that lgbts aren't going to fit in here and you're going to be happier outside the church so you have my blessing to go what is that you've heard that right I've heard the sentiment expressed. Yeah. So that's, that's one thing to name. And I want to talk about suffering. You know, and there's been a lot of suffering this week and this month and this 400 years for our friends of color. Yeah. But um, let's, let's analyze this a little bit more deeply because people look at Samuel on the wall as just some invincible superhero that's like can't be hit. But when Samuel was on that wall... You know, people might think he's not suffering because just because he wasn't physically hit. You know, however, we should not neglect the emotional and spiritual toll that this took on him. Yeah, he wasn't physically hit, but that doesn't mean he was invincible. It was so strenuous on him that he had to leave that city and never come back. So let's talk about the relationship between suffering and hope. You know, I love this text in Romans 8 verse 17 which teaches us that if we're if we suffer with Christ we'll be glorified with him and i think that's so powerful if we're so, if we suffer with him then we will also be glorified with him and so saint cyril of alexandria had a really good statement about this he says 
good works can hardly be done without suffering. Yet the suffering of the saints is nourished by a great hope. For nothing earthly is promised, but rather eternal glory. And I think that's interesting. He he doesn't say that the suffering is compensated by a great hope. He says that the suffering of the saints is nourished by a great hope. Isn't that interesting? Quite. That there's something about the suffering that is grounded in a larger hope. And I think that's exactly what marginalized people in the church have, is a hope that other people can't touch and can't understand. Mm. And I love, here's a, here's a great quotation. Um, it's by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He is a German theologian. He was killed by the Nazis in a concentration camp. He actually came to Harlem in the mid, I think in the early 30s or the 20s to study from the black church. He's been in the black church. That's pretty yeah. cool. And so here's what he said. And he was part of the resistance against the Nazis, one of the very few theologians in Germany that spoke out. And he was also one of the few that just didn't leave Germany. He's like, Other, others left Germany. And he said, nope, I'm going to stay and fight and, and teach until the end. So he says, a sort of joy exists that knows nothing at all of the heart's pain, anguish, and dread. It does not last. It can only numb a person for the moment. The joy of God has gone through the poverty of the manger and the agony of the cross. That is why it is invincible, irrefutable. I just love that because there's a superficial joy of people who have never had to struggle. That has, you know, you've seen that in the church, right? Oh, absolutely. There's people that have these perfect lives, but that joy can't last. It is not durable. But the joy that we have that has gone through the manger the embarrassment of the manger and the torture of the cross, we've got it, right? Our joy cannot be touched. And I think that's really what, what empowered Samuel the Lamanite when he was on the wall. Mm. He was able to tap into, and we'll get to this later, his main point was to tell them about the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus. Mm. And that literally empowered him. Definitely. I like that a lot. And, you know, I just want to talk a little bit about suffering on the margins real quick. Jumping ahead to this text in chapter 15. So we've got chapter 15, verse 2, where Samuel's going to, to talk about the devastation that will be coming upon the Nephites. He says in verse 2, Yea, except ye repent, your women shall have great cause to mourn in the day that they shall give suck. For ye shall attempt to flee, and there shall be no place for refuge. Yea, and woe unto them which are with child, for they shall be heavy and cannot flee. Therefore, they shall be trodden down and shall be left to perish. We don't have very many mentions of women in the text. I just want to lift up here the fact that when something devastating happens to a people, it, the devastation is multiplied to the people who are most vulnerable. And here we've got the women who, are, who have a young child, or the women who are pregnant. And we need to figure out who's the most vulnerable in our society and take care of them. That's the whole Black Lives Matter thing, right? We've got to figure out who's, who's at risk, who's not getting what they need, and realize that when a tragedy happens, and we'll, we see this with the coronavirus. With the coronavirus, it's devastating the people that were already financially, physically, economically disadvantaged or vulnerable. What do you think? 
I think if we had these stories, and we've talked about this before uh, at length, but we've talked about what might things look like or why, what, what might we learn from this text and how might we approach our theology if we had the stories of the more vulnerable populations, particularly the women in the text. We had to do so much work to figure out what was being said or what the lives may have been like or what was taught by the mothers of the, uh, of the stripling warriors, the anti-Nephi-Lehite women. We, we posted about this on our Instagram not too long ago, and some presumably straight white dude got on our Instagram to be like, I don't think there's a problem with us not having the women's stories. When do we not have the women's stories? And I remember replying something along the lines of, uh, how many verses, how many words in the whole 531-page, 6,600-verse Book of Mormon, how many of those verses are written by women? How many of those words come from women? And then he was like, something along the lines of, well, just because women aren't featured doesn't mean the book is patriarchal. And I'm just like, at this point, so let me get this straight. You don't believe that the fact that this book was kept primarily by men and that there's no words of women, despite them presumably being half the population in the Book of Mormon, you don't think that's a symptom of patriarchal silencing at all? And he was like, no, I don't. I think God just did what he did. You know, I'm just like, at this point, you have to wonder how much of a disservice we are doing to ourselves as a church or to ourselves as a people by not including these stories. Because we're just so accustomed to the narrative centering men or centering some other privileged group, we are not inclined to ask women what's up. We are not inclined to seek their voices. We're not inclined to seek other people, the voices of other people on the margins. And we see the damage that's doing to us today. You know what I'm saying? We see the damage of not seeking the voices and perspectives of the marginalized to the point where so many of us just do not feel welcome. There are not a lot of people that mm-hmm. yeah. either look like us or love like us. And, uh, you know, that, that just leads to a lot of problems that are totally unnecessary. And I wish we could get to bring ourselves to this point where we could really appreciate the suffering of the vulnerable that is often not spoken of in these scriptures, um, but nonetheless exists. And if we, are, if we can train ourselves to seek that out and look for it and appreciate it, if that's even the right word for this, then perhaps we can bring ourselves to a point where we are not in a position where there are so many white faces in this church Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. so many men in leadership that do not Mm -hmm. represent the interests of all of us or where there are not so many people that uh, identify as LGBTQ who are either leaving us or simply trying so hard to reconcile who they love with how they believe and just not having the resources they need. We are alienating ourselves from some of the most talented, most spiritual, and potentially the most uh, uh, most able people to help move this work forward right? because we cannot and we are not conditioned to seek out these voices and these stories. You know, that's why people laugh at me for studying ancient cultures, but that's one thing we learn is that within every culture, the women have, the, have traditional wisdom that they pass on, that they learn, that they teach. And we get glimpses of this in the record, especially in the Hebrew Bible. We have some, you know, tip of the iceberg indications of the wisdom of women and the stories of women and the voices of women. Mm-hmm. And he, here's my real concern about this brother. He, like, he says, I don't care that there's not enough women's voices in the Book of Mormon. 
what does that tell us about he how he treats women today? Mm-hmm. I can guarantee you that he doesn't think he has to listen to women today. Mm. So it's not just about an ancient text. It's about how he flows in the world today. I bet he he probably doesn't listen. If he's married to his wife, he may uh, he may not even value her opinion, really. You know? Or, or the voices of women in the church. You think, well, the men have everything. They're the watchmen on the tower. And they've got it all set. And they know what's going on. And they can see it all. Mm-hmm. And it's when the men think that they can see it all, they're not able to see what the women see. Mm-hmm. And I just want to connect this briefly. We've talked a lot about economic injustice before. But just briefly to remind people... In uh, Helaman 13, verses 21 through 23, we have a strong denunciation of economic justice. He talks about how they proliferate their riches and how there's a curse on it. And if there's a strong denunciation of economic injustice, that means that there's a strong witness in favor of social justice. And this entire population is cursed because of their riches. And it even says that this inequality leads to persecutions and murders. I don't know how much time we want to spend on this because we've <laughs> talked about this a little bit every week for a long time. Well, even still, I think that is important to bring out since it's being mentioned again. It is at least worth mentioning right? because noticing these patterns is how we know what to more or less pay attention to. And that was the first thing I noticed once I got to about uh, verse 15 or so. I was like, oh, more commentary on economic uh, justice and injustice. However, the fact that this is such a prominent ethic throughout the Book of Mormon, I wanted to focus on it because Samuel's language kind of gives a couple of callbacks to some other themes that we've discussed, particularly mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. King Benjamin's, uh, King Benjamin's uh, sermon and also with a couple of things in the Hebrew Bible that you brought up during that particular discussion. And uh, I just want to bring those out real quick. Yeah. So. Um, Again, this is still Helaman 13, and this particular ethic, at least as summarized in uh, Helaman 13, can basically be summed up as those who set their hearts upon riches while ignoring the poor, those people anger God and upset him. And Samuel takes several verses, pretty much verse 15 to the end, to talk about a curse on the land, a curse on the people and their riches because of their wickedness. So starting in verse 17, we see Samuel tells us that the land will be cursed because of wickedness and abominations upon it. Verse 18, the land itself becomes a character in the story. Whoso shall hide up treasures in the earth shall find them again no more because of the great curse on the land. And then later in that verse, the curse is going to keep riches away from folks that have hid them from the Lord. Whoso hideth up treasures in the earth shall find them again no more, save he be a righteous man and shall hide it up unto the Lord. And then uh, we get to verse 21, 22. The Lord is going to take those riches away from you if you don't thank him for those riches. And this is going to get to uh, something called the uh, Deuteronomic Covenant that we'll discuss a little bit later. But that's a 13, 21 through 22, uh, where the Lord basically says you're going to lose those riches if you don't display some gratitude. And then uh, later, verse 31 and still a bit of 21, because of iniquity, this curse would come upon the people and also their riches. Then folks are just going to start randomly losing stuff. Behold, we lay a tool here and on the morrow it's gone. And behold, our swords are taken from us in the day and we have sought them for battle. That's 34. And then we are going to see the punishment for those who, quote, have set their hearts upon their riches. 
And that punishment will be that they should cry in vain unto the Lord in their poverty. That's 21 and 32. We're going to see the disobedient crying out in vain for help, for help from the Lord. They would regret that they had not repented. That's 32 through 34 that uh, Samuel is saying that. And then we're going to see people hiding up their treasures to protect them from their enemies. And ironically, the Lord himself would retributive, retributively hide up their treasures when they flee from those enemies. That's human 1320. Those who try to secure their riches are going to find that they can't hold or retain them again because of this curse on the land. Again, remember the land is a character here, 31 and 36. And then he, okay, this is just, there's the whole reason I wanted to look at this. He uses the word right. slippery, slippery, like a weird word to use. I don't like that word, but he uses it like three or four times. And I'm just like, there has to be something here that I am missing that Samuel feels to use that particular word. There is something under it, and that's the only way, reason I was able to like make all these ties back to the land as a character and also this Deuteronomic covenant. There's a narrative that Samuel keeps repeating throughout the verses that basically goes, because of your sins, if you hide your treasure in the earth, you're not going to find it. Now, we probably don't have all the time uh, that we want to discuss this at length. This detail might not be all that important at the end of the day. But while this choice of words in and of itself is interesting and worth discussing, considering similar language is present in ancient Egyptian texts known to ancient Israelites, and considering the Book of Mormon is a sacred record with cultural, linguistic, and literary roots in the ancient Near East, it probably is going to suffice to say that Samuel is just providing a neat callback to economic ethics presented earlier in the Book of Mormon, most famously uh, by the likes of King Benjamin that we discussed several mm -hmm. weeks ago, as well as biblical narratives and laws that likely informed uh, this, uh, this narrative and these laws. And you already brought some of those out in our discussion on King Benjamin. I just wanted to, like the most relevant one I found, I, couldn't, I didn't listen to the episode again, and I couldn't find uh, the references that uh, you made, but I did find one mm -hmm. that was uh, super relevant, actually in the book of Deuteronomy. This is 8, 17 through 19. And thou say in thine heart, my power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that, ye, that he may establish his covenant, which he sware unto thy fathers, as it is this day. And it shall be, if thou do at all forget the Lord thy God, ye shall surely perish. We can see this idea, or at least a contrast to this idea, being taught in the Book of Mormon as recent as Helaman 5, with regard to heavenly treasures to be held in contrast to seeking earthly ones. Helaman taught this to his sons uh, Lehi and Nephi in chapter 5, verse 8. He said, Lay up for yourselves a treasure in heaven, yea, which is eternal, and which fadeth not away, yea, that ye may have that precious gift of eternal life. Helaman 5, 8. And again, I only find this interesting because this is only a few chapters ago and Lehi and Nephi may have been the very ones to convert Samuel. So he's probably hearkening back to these teachings that he's heard before. He's heard quite recently, actually. But this is all to say that poverty is an inevitable consequence of wickedness, particularly the sins of greed and ingratitude. This particular brand of wickedness, and this is the whole point Samuel is making during his whole sermon, this kind of wickedness is a predecessor to not just losing your wealth, not just losing your riches, but also to losing your soul. It is a predecessor to spiritual destruction as well. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts about that, and, and I think the word slippery is where I want to focus my thoughts. All right. Because 
it seems to me from what I can recall, this might be the only place or the only passage in the Book of Mormon that uses the word slippery a couple of times. I can't think of it anywhere else. I ha- I haven't done a search. Mm-hmm. But there's a there, there's a sort of common sense principle that the more rare a word is used, the more deliberate and intentional it is when someone uses it. Right. Like he is deliberately choosing a word that isn't very common because he has something really important to say. Mm-hmm. And to me, the significance of the word slippery is that he is threatening the privilege of those in power. And here's why it's so threatening. Because the word slippery means that the more you hold on to it, the more it will squirt away from you. And I think the more people try to latch on to their privilege and try to keep it safe and hold on to it, the more it will slip away. And when they heard this, they probably were convicted, at least some of them. Mm -hmm. And you wonder, well, where do these riches go when they slip away? Well, they go to the poor. I mean, the text here doesn't say that, but we have other texts like the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1 where the rich get say, sent empty, uh, they, they get, the rich get sent away empty-handed and the, and the poor get filled and with good things and they get the riches. And I love how the Israelites plunder the Egyptians when they, when they leave Egypt, right? The Egyptians stole from the labor of the Israelites for so long and then the Israelites, and then those riches slipped out of their hands. Mm. That's kind of what I think of the word slippery. All right. It's a very vivid and picturesque word that gets to uh, probably makes them uncomfortable. Let me get to talking about the whole role of a prophet right here. You know, we see especially in verses 24 and 29, a little bit later, that the job of a prophet is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Let me just summarize Helaman 13, 24 through 29. So he talks about the acceptance of false prophets that just tell them what they want to hear, and the ones that challenge them, they either slay them, stone them, or cast them out. And then, then Samuel goes on to say that if someone comes up to them and say, there's no iniquity in that, and, or there's no consequence to that, and you can do whatever you want, Samuel says that you receive him as a prophet, that, that they lift him up and give him substance, and this prophet speaks flattering words, and that this prophet says, all is well. And, you know, that's comforting the comfortable. Mm-hmm. Right? And so the point of a prophet is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And that's part of the Nephites' wickedness is that they wanted a prophet who can comfort the comfortable. And we see this today so much in the church Absolutely. and in American society. Yeah. There's people that are uncomfortable with social justice to the point where they write articles about it. <laughs> <laughs> and they just want to be comforted when they're already comfortable. Mm-hmm. But the best spiritual work will make you uncomfortable sometimes. Yeah. And I just want to get into some of the point of religion. Some listeners, we've got a lot of people listening who are exploring their faith journey and, and maybe rethinking a lot of things and even wondering what is the point of religion? And should we give up on religion? And what is its proper role? And I see several functions of religion. One, 
It's to comfort the afflicted and afflicted the comfortable. Science really doesn't do that. It just helps us predict the consequences of our choices, but it doesn't tell us which choices we should value. And here, we get some values. Two, religion serves to facilitate the formation and preservation of group identity, and that's pretty important. Three, the act of meaning-making. So much of religion is about meaning-making, making sense of the world. And four, most importantly, Religion is about direct connection with the divine. And so for me, the role of religion is, at least it's not to provide factual claims about the observable world so much as it is to give us all these other things. Mm. But a lot of people will want to take religion and make it into a shortcut to bypass actual science and history. Mm. And we will run up against this in this generation of the church, we have a lot of historical and doctrinal things that we're going to have to wrestle with, and we're going to see where we're going to see where that plays out. Mm. For this, we have to re-acknowledge what Samuel is doing in this particular moment. He is he is condemning the Nephites for rejecting the prophets for, and they're rejecting the prophets because, again, these prophets are afflicting the comfortable. But he but the way he says it, the way he acknowledges this this failing in the Nephite people sounds eerily familiar to me as a black man in America. Many of us believe that if we were alive in the civil rights era, we would have been supportive of equal rights and perhaps even marched with Dr. King. That march in Washington, did you hear about that? There's a march in Washington happening either today or tomorrow, at least that's what it looks like on social media. But we believe that we would have been there or that we would have marched alongside Dr. King. Uh, I I think I told this story on the show before about uh, my experience with 42, that uh, Jackie Robinson movie when it came out. But I was living in Utah at the time, and uh, several of my white friends and coworkers were coming to me talking about how how much they felt for Jackie Robinson and how much they empathized with, you know, him as a black man. And I'm just thinking in my head, uh, you realize in the late 40s, early 50s, you probably would have empathized more with the villains of that story than the hero. I didn't say this to anybody, but it was definitely something that went through my head. Yeah, people can appreciate uh, Jackie Robinson now. They can appreciate Muhammad Ali now. They can appreciate Martin Luther King now. But would Now they- that they're dead. Now that they're dead. Yeah, I hate to say that, mm-hmm. but yeah. Yeah, but uh, that was something that had occurred to me as I read these verses. Yeah, they probably would have empathized more with the villains of that, of that movie. I, like, again, this is what I'm thinking. I'm just like, that, that's you guys, though. Y'all are the bad people. Y'all are the white people in that movie, <laughs> you know? But uh, I think about the more recent moments of uh, civil rights struggle. I think about you know, how these people might have been responding to Kaepernick when he took a knee. Are these same people that could feel for Jackie Robinson or feel for Muhammad Ali? Are these the same people? How, like, what's the Venn diagram look like for these white people that approached me about 42 and these white people that had say, something to say about Colin Kaepernick when he knelt? It is almost a complete circle. These people are either silent now or they have way too much to say against Kaepernick for the, for the things that he did back in 2016. They're all, they were all kinds of bothered. Like some of these people are bothered simply by the phrase black lives matter. And that tells you 
basically all you need to know. But look at what Samuel says just after predicting the Nephite response to the condemnation of their treatment of the prophets. This is verse 26. Behold, I should probably read 25 first, sorry. Now he says, this is Samuel saying, And now when ye talk, ye say, If our days had been the days of our fathers of old, we would not have slain the prophets, we would not have stoned them and cast them out. And then in verse 26 he goes on to say, Behold, ye are worse than they. For as the Lord liveth, if a prophet come among you and declareth unto you the word of the Lord, which testifieth of your sins and iniquities, ye are angry with him, and cast him out, and seek all manner of ways to destroy him. Yea, you will say that he is a false prophet, and that he is a sinner and of the devil, because he testifieth that your deeds are evil. Isn't this what we're doing today? Like those calling out, it is, yeah. Yeah, like those calling out our racism. We seek to suppose those calling out racism. We seek to suppose are evil or possessed with devils or have some kind of mental issues or just some people that are just trying to start trouble. Like we saw this a bunch when Kaepernick started kneeling. Everybody tried to start blaming him or start calling him evil or calling him a divider of this country. You know, that's what we have. And to this day, like it's four years later, Kaepernick still doesn't have a job. Still does not have a job. And somebody just a couple weeks back, and you talked about this, felt to write a whole think piece on the problem with social justice ideology and why it's not compatible with the gospel because she wasn't comfortable with it. Like the very notion that black people would say black lives matter or assert their humanity bothered her so much, mm. she had to write a whole, like whole paragraphs about why social justice is bad. That is a special kind of commitment to ignorance and racism. And that's what Samuel is basically seeing. He's seeing people that are so committed to their sin, so committed to their idolatry, their wickedness and abominations, that they are willing, and Samuel correctly predicts it, he's like, they are going to try to kill Samuel. We're going to see that in chapter 15. These people are going to try to kill Samuel simply for saying, y'all got to do better. You know, and here's the, the biggest irony about these people with the problem with Kaepernick is that his protest is the easiest to ignore. They mm. could have gone on with their lives. He, he wasn't even saying anything. He was just taking a knee. He wasn't boycotting anything. He wasn't disrupting anything. There was no like, direct action that disrupted anything. He just mm -hmm. kneeled, and people noticed. And, and he kneeled and said, why? And that got people so upset, which tells you how vulnerable white supremacy is, that mm -hmm. even one little criticism bugs them like not like nothing. Mm -hmm. That's how fragile it is because there's no foundation to it, and the fact that there's no foundation to it is reflected in this article that that we both responded to. She's she's trying to say that the social justice is incompatible with the gospel. My point is that you can't have the gospel without an integral understanding of salvation. By integral, I mean the whole person, right. not just the soul. Mm -hmm. But the body and the community as well, you have to look at, it, look at it in an integrated manner. And there's so much richness in the gospel tradition that it took me two and a half hours <laughs> yep. to cover even on just a small portion mm -hmm. of how rich the gospel is with testimonies towards justice. I watched the first 42 minutes, guys, and it is by no means comprehensive. I don't, like, I'm saying this about Derek. He did a 42-minute thing, <laughs> and it is still not exhaustive or comprehensive. There's so much more that he could have said, but, you know. Yeah. Well, I did say some more in, the, in part in, two. In part and part two and part three, yes. 
but I still didn't say nearly as much. I mean, you would literally have to go through every chapter of the Bible. There's something in there indirectly or directly connected with our life on earth, how we treat each other, with the embodiment of justice. It's not just about, oh, you can talk about someone's soul and forget the rest of them. Right, right. So, um, again, this is all to say that this is what people do. Even in our wrongness, we are, or perhaps especially in our wrongness, we don't like to be challenged. We like to be affirmed, and we will lie to ourselves to do that. Verse 27 and 28 is what that brings us to. But behold, if a man shall come upon you, you've already quoted this, Derek, but I'm going to read it again anyway. If a man shall come upon, among you and shall say, do this, there is no iniquity, do that, ye shall not suffer. Yea, he will say, walk after the pride of your own hearts, walk after the pride of your eyes, do whatever your heart desireth. And if a man shall come among you and say this, you will receive him and say that he is a prophet. Yea, you will lift him up. You will give unto him of your substance. You will give unto him of your gold and your silver, and you will clothe him with costly apparel. And because he speaketh flattering words unto you, and he saith that all is well, then you will not find fault with him. This is us. This is who we are. This is what we're doing. We want to be affirmed in our wrongness. How often have we seen folks get challenged on racism and then either get defensive or silent until a voice that affirms their racism is presented? There are people who won't engage me on the race conversation at all. They won't talk Black Lives Matter with me at all. But as soon as Candace Owens releases a video, they are all over that ish and they're raising her up as a courageous young lady all because she says what they're thinking but are scared to. This is the kind of prophet that... Uh, Samuel is talking about people who do not challenge us, people who do not afflict us, people who make us more comfortable in our wrongness. Those are the kind of people we get money to. In fact, this is the only reason Candace Owens has any money is because yeah. she is paid to say disparaging things about her own race. She's not the only huckster out there, but this is basically what Samuel is addressing. These are the people he's talking about. This is the wickedness of the people of Nephi. Well, wait, I, I, I still don't get this because if someone said, I will pay you lots and lots of money to say bad things about black people, I still wouldn't do it. Mm. I mean, this gets back to the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4. Like, Satan promised the world to Jesus if he would, if he would like, give in. I'm like, no, I am not going to sell out black folks for money and that's apparently what that is what candace is doing yep she's doing it for the money she's right? doing it for the money and it bugs me and it like you said the biggest thing about the white people who are who are celebrating candace the reason that they're celebrating her is not because they want to uplift the voice of a black person it's because they want to listen to the black people that make them comfortable mm -hmm. and not the black people that make them uncomfortable, mm -hmm. which tells you everything you need to know mm -hmm. about them. Definitely. And I wanted to get into the heart of Samuel the Lamanite's proclamation because this is at the foundation of his courage and it's at the foundation of his social justice message around economic justice. And it gets back to, he discusses all throughout chapter 14, taking up most of that chapter with a discussion of the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the signs surrounding them. And I think it's the, it's the life of Jesus that centers his courage and gives him the physical uh, invincibility to, to go up on that wall 
And I just want to say say one thing about the birth of Jesus, and this is quoting from St. Ambrose, and it, this will get into some themes. Like people say, why are you smuggling in something social justice into Christmas? I mean, Christmas is always all about social justice. <laughs> you know. Y'all are missing the point, guys. Come on. And so here's what St. Ambrose said. He said, He was a baby and a child so that you may be a perfect human. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes so that you may be freed from the snares of death. He was in a manger so that you may be in the altar. He was on earth that you may be in the stars. He had no other place in the inn so that you may have many mansions in the heavens. Hmm. He, being rich, became poor for your sakes that through his poverty you might be rich. Mm-hmm. Come on, somebody. And let me just say, this is a quotation of one of your favorite verses in Second Corinthians 8, verse 9, Absolutely. which you I have quoted a number of times. Now back to St. Ambrose. Therefore his poverty is our inheritance, and the Lord's weakness is our virtue. He chose to lack for himself that he may abound for all. The sobs of that appalling infancy cleanse me, those tears wash away my sins. Therefore, Lord Jesus, I owe more to your sufferings because I was redeemed than I do to works for which I was created. Isn't that powerful? Yeah, man. And I that's that. the model. Jesus is the model for what we need to be doing to take upon ourselves an attitude of hum- humility, divesting ourselves of privilege in order that other people might be served. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the gospel. Love I mean, that. I don't, don't understand. Now, this, the author, Rebecca Taylor, she must not listen to our podcast. I am just telling you because. <laughs> Probably not. Because it's clear. Like, there's no refutation here. No. There's no way of refuting the connection between social justice and the gospel. And that gets back to the, one of the weirdest ironies that she made in, her, in her, uh, her post. Because let's look at the end of Helaman 14 right after. We get all this talk about the signs of Jesus' birth and death. We've got this discussion of accountability. I won't read it, the whole thing here, but verses 29 through 31 in chapter 14 says that, look, there's going to be a righteous judgment. And if you uh, are, are condemned, you bring upon yourself your own condemnation. And if you perish, you perish, perish unto yourself. And then it says in verse 30, For behold, ye are free ye are permitted to act for yourselves. And some people will say, well, we've got agency, we can do what we want, and cancel culture is bad because you're forcing people to do what's right. No, we're not forcing people. We are attaching a consequence mm-hmm. to their misbehavior. That's what it says there right is a, that. There is a consequence. You just don't get to do whatever you want mm-hmm. and say there's no consequence. Right. She's confusing agency and accountability. There is accountability. Yes, you are free to do what you want, but you are not f- exempt from, from social... Yeah. And that's exactly what happens in, in the end of 31. It says you can do evil and have that which is evil restored unto you. Mm, for real, man. But anyway, I think that's a great place to end because I, I, I don't have anything else. Do you have uh, anything else for the No, time? I don't have anything else. Okay, sweet. Then before we transition into our housekeeping items, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. 
Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes, at Lyceum, or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and YouTube now that I have my videos out. <laughs> you can find Derek on YouTube. Yes. It's, I think it's under Derek Knox somehow. Or you can just search for Social Justice and the Greek New Testament. We also have a link tree on our website now, so any links to our other content you can access directly from there. You can see uh, me, Channing, and Elise's article from that link tree. You oh, can that's also... a great article. Thank you. And you can also see uh, Derek's uh, video series from there. And uh, uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on um, Instagram. Yes, Instagram. They got reels now, so it looks like we will never need to get TikTok again. Wow. Yes. So <laughs> Derek is so not excited, but it's fine. It's fine. I wanted to do a TikTok and we can dance together. Well, we can and... still do it, but we don't need TikTok anymore oh, to do that. We can okay. do like Instagram got reels now, which basically means we have TikTok and Instagram, but not so dangerous. So does it pair it with like pre-existing music? Yeah. You can like oh. add music to it or put your own audio on it. You can basically do exactly oh, so it what you do. It is TikTok. On... It's TikTok, but it's... On Instagram. Like, okay. It's like when Instagram introduced stories. It's like Instagram became Snapchat. So now all of us <laughs> older folks, we don't need Snapchat. And now we don't need TikTok. Because Instagram has both of those built in. So, yeah. Suck on that. Both of those apps. Um, so, yeah. A- uh, announcements. Do we have any Oh, events coming up that we want yes. to announce? Yes. Let's just remind everyone of the Affirmation Conference. Go to conference.affirmation.org. And you can sign up for this, um, the yearly affirmation conference, which is now going to be virtual over several weekends in September and October. But go ahead and check that out. It's for LGBTQ Mormons, allies, family, and friends, and especially church leaders. If you know any church leaders who would benefit from a better understanding of LGBTQ issues, have them, uh, have them show up. I just wanted to say one other thing that, that I just remind, reminded me of. You know, if you go back to Helaman chapter 13, there's this one verse that uses the singular they. A lot of people say we've got to be allies to our transgender friends, our siblings, and a lot of people say, well, you can't use the word they as a singular because that's not right. <laughs> And here, the Book of Mormon uses singular they. If you look at Helaman 13, verse 19, it says, For none, which is singular, no one, for none hideth, that verb morphologically is singular, it's third person singular, only the third singular ends in eth, for none hideth up their treasures unto me, save it be the righteous. So you've got a singular subject and singular verb, and then you've got a singular they, that refers back to that antecedent. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. And so Shakespeare uses singular they. The King James Version uses singular they. It is an established part of the English language. And it is even if you didn't think it was, it is better to break a rule than to break a person. So don't you dare use someone's wrong pronouns. Hmm. Okay? Hmm. 
So thank you for that digression. <laughs> Back to the Affirmation Conference. Yeah. Sign up for it. Sign up for the Affirmation Conference. And also going to plug in our Glow page again. You guys already know we've been talking about it for at least two or three months now. But if y'all want to throw some coins our way to help us sustain this work of Beyond the Block and making Mormonism as accessible as we can to everybody, um, you know, by all means, throw them coins our way. We, you can uh, donate at uh, glow.fm slash beyond the block. And if you do so, you get access to all the benefits of being a collaborator. You can uh, join our collaborator Facebook group where you can interact with us more directly, provide some feedback, ideas for the show, get access to our notes, and a lot more. We, we, we're thinking about stuff, guys. We're trying to think about what else we can do outside of the podcast medium to uh, make this work more accessible to people like us and also uh, hopefully provide more resources to you guys other than uh, the podcast. We're, we're talking about some potentially exciting things. We're not going to make them totally public until we solidify those ideas a little bit more, but they do involve some of our favorite people, people like Dr. Reverend Fatima Saleh and uh, the Black LDS Legacy Committee. And uh, we really hope that we can uh, bring you some more, bring you guys some more resources, but uh, we can't do it without your help. And uh, we probably couldn't have even done this much without your guys' help. We are very grateful for your support, all of you collaborators who have literally bought into what we are doing here. It means the world to us. It's hella validating. We love, uh, we, we just love having you guys here and we love that you feel so on board with what you're doing, that you're willing to di- donate your time, your resources, your skills and talents. Yes. Like, thanks. For real. Like David Doyle, for example, and uh, Tamara Kemsley and Eden Wynn. Like, thank all of you guys for really buying in to this to the point where you are just able to do this work with us. Hopefully we'll be able to pay you guys one day, but like, yeah. and I'm, our social media is great. It's blossoming and, and you out there, not to toot our horns, but you, you, you better be <laughs> thankful that Eden's doing our social media For real, guys. rather than me, because if I did it, <laughs> our social media would be as bad as my jokes. I'm not going to disagree with that. guys. <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like for reals, a lot of this stuff that has made our, our uh, content accessible to you guys is due in large part to people who have donated of their time and skills to our cause. And, uh, you know, we'd really like to be able to do more for you guys and also more for those who have, uh, you know, given so much to make sure that this is accessible to everybody. So uh, let's just keep the love fest going so that we can keep getting more done and making this content and making Mormonism and Christianity as accessible to as many people as possible. Uh, is there anything else I got to put out there? Derek? No, that's I, it. That's it? Okay. Well, it's been a rough week, guys, but uh, stay safe out there and uh, keep that love on y'all at all times. Thank you for listening to us. Till we meet again next week. Yeah, thank you so much. I'll see you next week. <laughs>